This is Renegade's Roundup. Your best source for recaps, info, and discussions about the Arlington Renegades of the XFL. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Zach. Hey, what's up, Hellraisers? Week one is in the books, and boy, do we have a lot to talk about on this edition of Renegades Roundup. I'm Zach, back for more fun. We're going to be talking a little bit about how week one of the XFL went off of the top here, and then we're going to be taking a look at the final score of 22-20 to against Vegas, the attendance, fan engagement, some stats, all kinds of great stuff related to that, and then we've got a couple of possible players of the game that we can take a look at as well and then we'll take a look at what next week has in store for us hint it'll be a renewal of a rivalry from 2020 joining me for all of that fun as he has been the entire duration of this show it's joe scanlon joe i know you didn't get to participate in week one but you got to be one of the over a million viewers that were watching what did you make of week one of the XFL? I thought it went pretty well. Um, now, product, there were some times where I'm like, oh my lord, can these guys play football? Point in question there, St. Louis versus Saint, San Antonio. I watched that whole game, and I was literally like falling asleep on my couch until the last minute 30, and I realized this is why the XFL is going to be Amazing because of how uh, the St. Louis Battlehawks came back from 12 down with a minute 30 left, which is you know that's not uh, that's not heard of in the NFL. So oh no, uh, the fourth and 15 onside I thought was amazing. Uh, the three point play to you know get within three spectacular. So there was moments of electricity. And then there were moments like Ben DiNucci throwing it right to a DC defender and watching him walk into the end zone. So, overall, though, I thought it went pretty well. There was a little bit of drama in that Seattle-DC game as well. Did you hear that security tried to confiscate the beer snake? Free the beer snake, man. What? Free the what? snake. That's what? probably the only time I'm ever going to be able to say that. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about beer beer snake, folks. Uh, beer, yeah, it, beer snakes. <laughs> I don't know. Let the let the people have some fun, man. Who who is it hurting? Who is it hurting? They're just holding a a, a row of cups on their shoulders, and and I thought it was hilarious. They started throwing lemons. I was like, where where do they get the lemons? That's what I want to know. I <laughs> don't know. Like, what kind of ballpark food are you getting at the concession stand that comes with a lemon wedge? Yeah. Like, did everybody order an iced tea and they all decided <laughs> to throw their tea, their their tea lemons at once? I don't I don't get it. But it was hilarious to watch because they had to throw up like a big sign that's like people who throw things onto the stands or, or onto the field of play are subject to ejection, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like just let them have their empty cups for crying out loud. It was one of the most iconic things of 2020. The fans were like hell bent on bringing it back. And then security gets in the way. Exactly. It was just, it was, it was ridiculous. But there was, like you said, a lot of drama that happened in San Antonio. I was really, really proud of the Brahma fans' turnout. Mm -hmm. Double that of any other home team. 24,000 strong. That lower bowl completely sold out, I read somewhere online. The Brahma faithful, they didn't have anything really to cheer for the spurs have got 14 wins on the year now i feel like they finally got something to cheer for as long as they don't choke every final 90 seconds of every game <laughs> oh yeah yeah i was about to say let's uh let's get into this because the tv numbers are also interesting too and uh, yeah big news also out of san antonio that was uh dropped today so i'm ready to get going let's do it yeah, for sure. Uh, we, we've kind of teased a little bit about stuff around the league, but we'll go ahead and make it official now. It's time for cylinder number one. <laughs> so 
Cylinder number one is a look at the scores and some thoughts from around the league. We already touched on some of the drama and some of the fan numbers, attendance that we were getting from week one. But as you mentioned, Joe, there was some drama with the Brahmas where they fired their VP of event business operations, Mike Sheehan. And uh, the XFL released a statement saying that it had nothing to do with any kind of financial problems. People were having knee-jerk reactions after all of the stuff that happened in 2020, worried about it uh, being something that has to do with finances. Are they trimming personnel already? It was literally a personnel decision from what the statement read. It had everything to do with how he was fitting in with the organization or not fitting in, and they just relieved him of his duties. So either somebody else within the organization is going to step up or they'll make another hire. But that position is something that the Brahmas intend on having there. It's just not going to be filled by Sheehan. Yeah, and, uh, you know, my reaction wasn't even financial. I know people, you know, freaked out about all that. But to me, seeing him get fired, I, I had a feeling something shady was going on behind the scenes, whether it be... Um, harassment in nature um or you know maybe he wasn't uh you know maybe he wasn't you know fitting in like you said uh i think i think i'm leaning towards harassment though because you don't just not fit in you know he's been the gm the whole time this offseason and now he's not fitting in nah so i'm thinking there's something behind there We'll probably find out. They'll probably release something here. They have to probably investigate and whatnot. But, you know, right now, all we know is he is gone. Yeah, and and until we know for sure, it's probably not worth dwelling on and speculating on. But it was just really weird timing for it to happen right after week one, a very successful first week, as we mentioned. The attendance over 24,000. The fans seemed really engaged. The our, our friend, our mutual friend, XFL Outsider, was at the game, said that the lines yep. for the merchandise were just, you know, rows and rows long. That was like 100 yards probably for people just trying to get Brahma merch. So the, the fan base seems really engaged, and it seems like Sheehan was doing his job. People showed up in San Antonio more than anywhere else, and then he gets let go. So that's that's kind of interesting, but... That's really the only thing we have news-wise for y'all until we take a look at the TV numbers. Um, The only other thing that I would make note of is how very few people got injured in week one. The only noticeable injury report that I'm noticing on Twitter is that the Vipers' Vic Beasley is still in concussion protocol. Aside from that, and maybe one injury to the Roughnecks O-line, I forget the player's name off the top of my head, Aside from those two injuries, there really weren't a whole lot of players that are going to be out of week two that were competing really hard in week one. Uh, Our well wishes, obviously, to Beasley that he gets through the protocol pretty well, but honestly, if that is the worst that's happened in the first week of action, that's actually pretty damn good. Yeah, exactly, and I think a lot of it is because... um, how many fields are turf? San, I, from from this past weekend, it was just San Antonio, I believe, because DC's grass, Arlington's grass. Uh, yeah, it may have it may have just been well. TDECU Stadium in Houston, I think, is turf. You think it's turf? Because as we've started to kind of see here in recent, uh, you know, history with all levels of football, turf is not conducive to. Uh, preventing injuries. In fact, I think it provides more injuries. So, uh, you know, interesting that he got a concussion on the grass, but, you know, if if it was this bad off of grass, imagine if he had hit turf, because that's like hitting concrete. So, you know, well wishes to him for sure. I mean, this this game that we're about to talk about, that'll be the next cylinder. We'll, We'll focus specifically on the Renegades from here on out in just a minute. That game had a lot of big hits. It was a hard-hitting football game, and being the inaugural game of the new uh, XFL, being uh, revived and revitalized the way that it was, I think the players had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder trying to prove something, and they proved it in front of over 1.5 million people. 
that that opening Renegades Vipers game on ABC had 1.57 million viewers, and then the uh, San Antonio St. Louis game had 1.53 million. So the games broadcast on ABC did really really well. The cable games were all under a, uh, a million viewers. Even when you combine like the ESPN plus FX numbers for Houston Orlando, um, when you take it off of network TV, it seems to be going downward a little bit. And for me, that's a little concerning because Mike Mitchell from XFL News Hub said that there's not going to be another ABC game until like week six. So from Ooh. here from here on out, the XFL is going to be relying on the ESPN networks, the FX networks, and Week one numbers, not that great. No, definitely a lot lower than the first weekend in 2020. And, you know, part of me wonders if maybe people just weren't, I don't know, as into it because, you know, I, I don't get that, though, because there was such a big buildup for this for this uh, edition of the XFL mm-hmm. compared to 2020. And so maybe, maybe they're spring leagued out because of usfl last year and the fan controlled league and stuff like that i don't know but i uh, there's also the fact of this wasn't the only thing you could watch this weekend uh yeah. nba all-star game was going on um daytona you know daytona so it's you're competing against two established uh sporting events and you're a brand new league Kind of brand new league, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. I I can kind of see why the little bit of a decrease in number, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with ESPN because you know what I think, and I, and I think this is just across all football because uh, you know, college games get played on ESPN too. I wonder what those numbers are like because I would bet the ESPN numbers for those aren't very high either. Usually, because yeah. it's not marquee games, they usually get sent to Fox, CBS. Mm-hmm. ABC, etc. Right, right. The the stuff you see on ESPNU is usually like Syracuse, Boston College. It's not LSU, Alabama. So, right. like, I, I, I get that. Um, but on, on the flip side, you were talking about how um, maybe they're just kind of done with spring football. Uh, the USFL did a simulcast on Fox and NBC, which is two big primary network stations. And between the two of them, their very first game of their season had a combined 3 million viewers. Now, I will rebuttal that, Zach, with what was there for spring football before the USFL came back. So I think they had that uh, bit of momentum from the fact of, oh, we haven't seen spring football since COVID destroyed the XFL. Now the USFL's back. Let's check this out. Let's see how this goes. I don't think we'll get a real good number until the USFL starts their season. And then if they're if they're, you know, out gaining XFL and TV numbers, then I don't know at that point. But I, I, I hesitate to compare the two because of that, you know. Well, let's let's compare the XFL to the XFL then. I found the T V numbers for week one of two thousand twenty. The DC Seattle game that was in February um on abc had 3.3 million and the la houston game on fox later that day 3.2 million so this is pretty much half of that on these abc broadcasts to have 1.5 i'm not saying that this is what's going to happen every single week because like you said nba all-star daytona I think on ESPN, I read it was like in the top 10 for most watched cable programs for that time slot for the target demographic. That's still a really great showing for the very first week of your season to crack the top 10 of cable shows already. So I'm not hitting the panic button just yet. These are just the the facts as they are, but they are very interesting and very telling stats, I think. Oh, no, I agree 100%. And... We'll have to see how this next weekend goes. Because honestly, you know, compared, like I said, 2020 XFL, what spring football had there been before the XFL came mm-hmm. back in 2020? Uh, you had the AAF, but that went defunct in 2019, 2018? It was 18 or 19. It was one of those. Yeah. And, so, the, and the San Antonio Faithful showed up there, too. So 
yeah. they they love their football. They do. So I I see you know when it seems to be there wasn't anything to fill that slot and then something comes, the numbers seem to jump. And that's just based on the numbers I see. So uh like I said, we'll have to just wait and see. If this is a trend, then maybe start to worry around week three or four. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Um for those of you that didn't keep up, all the teams that uh, that won this week were Arlington, Houston, St. Louis, and D.C. They are all our 1-0 squads. And then at 0-1, obviously, Vegas, Orlando, San Antonio, and Seattle. There's going to be a couple of really interesting games this week. But before we take a look at what's going to be happening, there's a Thursday game happening yeah. this week. Uh, this recording is happening before the Thursday game gets played. Hopefully it gets pumped out before the Thursday game is broadcast. But uh, it's kind of a quick turnaround for a couple of squads as they get ready for week two. Um, but before we go into the next cylinder, I want to give a couple of quick fun facts. The ESPN Plus stats are not available for TV yet. Okay. So we don't know what the ESPN Plus viewership does to contribute to those numbers. It will probably make them a little bit higher, but until they actually release them, we don't know how well ESPN Plus helped. But all of the games this year are going to be on ESPN Plus. And then the other fun fact that I thought was really funny, the St. Louis market outviewed Daytona. The the Battlehawks faithful tuned in in droves to St. Louis's game in San Antonio. According to numbers, there was a viewership of around 111,000 in the St. Louis market compared to just 69,000 tuning into Daytona. So about 50K more people were tuning in from St. Louis than, uh, than into Daytona, which I thought was pretty cool. Hey, yeah, that's, that's awesome, actually. So... There's some positives there. There's some things to just watch for. Well, I'm curious how the Arlington faithful are going to tune in to their first road game. Being in Houston, I feel like a lot of fans may just make the road trip. But uh, for those that aren't, we got official announcement today that Bourbon Street Bar and Grill in Bedford is going to be the host of the first official watch party. You can start showing up on the 26th at 5 p.m. for that game against Houston if you're not going in person. They're not paying us to say that, but if you're interested in hanging out with Renegades fans and Renegades faithful, apparently you have to commute from Arlington to Bedford to do that. What do you make of that? Uh, maybe they just want a centralized location for DFW. I don't know. Not like Arlington's in the center of DFW either. I mean, maybe a little farther south than Bedford, but still right in the middle. So I mean, in 2020, it was being hosted by Texas Live, and I, I'm yeah. kind of wondering what's up with that, but... I'm not going to speculate, but yeah, Bourbon Street Bar and Grill in Bedford for those of you local that want to go and tune in. And with that Renegades-themed announcement, the whole rest of this show is strictly about the Renegades, starting with a recap of the 22-20 finish that happened this past week. Get ready, folks. It's time for Cylinder number 2. Joe, The Rock showed up at this game and Mm -hmm. then hopped on his private jet and flew down to Houston for the game that night. And pretty much every game this weekend I think he was at. Was he at D.C.? I don't know if he was at D.C., but he was at San Antonio. He was at San Antonio for sure. And every single game he was at, he was saying, XFL, let's ball out, baby. And... Aside from that thrilling finish down in San Antonio, I dare say Arlington-Vegas was the game that involved everybody balling out. The first half, it was Vegas's offense that was balling out. The second half, it was Arlington's defense that balled out. A complete tale of two halves because it was a 14-3 ball game at the break. And then somehow... Arlington finds a way. What are what are your initial thoughts on this come from behind victory? 
I was actually at the horse races here in Nebraska, uh, so I didn't really get to watch a lot of the game, but I did keep track on my phone, and I saw 14-3, and I was like, oh, dear Lord, I picked this team to make it to the championship. <laughs> uh, and, man, I tell you what, good game, good thrilling game, 22-20. Can't ask for a closer game than that, maybe you know, a one-point game, but you know, just the, the defense stepping up in the second half and and balling out, like you know, like you said, like the Rock wanted them to do, and the the pick six by uh, oh who was it? Um, well, we had two of them. Yeah, two of them. Uh, Devante Bowsby and Tomasi Laulau. La, 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 I don't know. Lile, I hope. Lile, okay. I hope. Okay. I hope I got that right. I hope I got that right too. But you know, two two pick sixes and. You know, you win the game. I tell you what, offense, you better step the hell up this next week. That's for dang sure because the defense has nothing, nothing to be ashamed of or anything like that. You know, 14 points in the first half is a respectable number. The offense just needed to show up. And, you know, I was curious because we really thought Kyle Sloter was going to start this game and it ended up being Drew Plitt. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I gotta tell you, I was I was at the game. I was actually working the game. Okay, that was right. that was the the little behind the scenes thing. If you follow me on social media, I made that announcement. Um, I love how people thought you were having a kid. Yeah, people. Thought, I said that there was a big announcement coming, and everybody starts commenting, <gasps> "You're pregnant." <laughs> I'm like, people, I've been married for five months. Give me a break. Um, but. Yeah, um, I, I was able to get in touch with their communications director and got all the paperwork filled out. And none of the paperwork, nothing in the contract, stipulated that I wasn't allowed to podcast about the team. I, I, I made sure to check the wording. Um, but I still want to talk nice about the team and talk nice about my employers because I had a really great time um, just being a part of the behind-the-scenes stuff. But then my work during the game was in the press box. So I was observing the game from one of the better vantage points in the stadium because it was like freaking cold out there. It was like in the 40s, I think. It was nice and toasty in the press box, I'm just saying. Um, I I saw Plitt step out onto the field, and that was one of the first kind of notes that I made during my work. I was like, oh, that is, that is interesting. Um, I knew that it was a, a back-and-forth affair during training camp. But for some reason, I guess I just assumed that Sloter would get the edge. And you've got a point that the way he orchestrates it is not a very run-and-gun style, which is what we're probably used to. Um, but if you take a look at the, the statistics, just the numbers as they are, um, Plitt actually had the best completion percentage of any quarterback that saw playing time this week. So it, it's it's tough to to take a look at it completely because AJ McCarron he had a pretty good game but he was sixty nine percent completion. Uh, nice. Jack Cohn was sixty nine percent completion. Nice. Quentin Dormady was sixty six percent. Those are like the closest anybody gets. Drew Plitt's uh, nineteen of twenty five performance is a seventy six percent completion rate. So aside from the two-minute offense where he threw an interception that didn't lead to any points anyways, um, aside from that, he was the most accurate passer for week one, and he had the most rushing yards for a quarterback for week one with 16 off of that quarterback scramble that gave him a first down and extended the drive. So there's definitely positives to take away from his performance but when you're relying on your defense to score two touchdowns for you to win the game, there are definitely some adjustments you need to make. I'll grant. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And the one thing, you know, you could have a great accuracy, but when you have a goose egg in the touchdown column and a one in the interception column, I consider that not a good game. And that's just the way I kind of grade my quarterbacks. Um, He's got to get the offense moving. Apparently, they struggled to run the ball. Devion Smith had 15 carries for 42 yards. And so, you know, like like you said, Zach, you were at the game. Was the offensive line not the all-USFL team we were touting uh, before this first game? 
I don't know if it was that they're quote unquote not all pros. I think it may have to do with understanding assignments and repetitions. Which which comes with week one. So, you know, yes. it's 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 something to, you know, point out, but at the same time, am I, you know, extremely worried about it? No. You gave up three sacks, not the greatest, but still not Joe Burrow on the Bengals level. So <laughs> when we get to that level, then I'm going to worry. Uh, it's the first week. You got to get the kinks out. And that's why I'm kind of curious to see what happens here in the second game coming up this week because now the, now the kinks are out. The nerves are gone. You've right. ha- got one game under your belt. You know What is Drew Plick going to do? What is Devion Smith going to do? How is the offensive line going to block? And so it, it's it's it, it's hard to judge performance on the first game or, and base future performances on the first game because it is the first game. Right, right. I, I will say, though, one of, one of the things that did impress me was the way that the defense buckled down when they needed to. Even if the the offense was having trouble, um, like we mentioned, having two pick sixes, uh, pinning them really deep in their own end zone, and then it comes down to the final possession of the game. All right, Luis Perez, a semi-pro journeyman, is marching the team down the field, and they're able to get that last second touchdown. They get the score uh, with literally, I think, eight seconds left or something like that. Eight, five seconds left. And you connect on a 20-yard touchdown on a crossing route to Sinke Sweeting. And you're, you're about to go for two to tie the ball game. And what happens? You get a sack. Mm-hmm. T.J. Barnes, number 72, I think we talked about him um, during during last uh, last week's game because we were looking at uh, that, that D-line, the defensive edge. Uh, he's that player that we were saying, 6'7", 335. They actually interviewed him, and he said that he was able to get down under 300. I think he's like 285 now or something like that yeah, is what he said go. in the interview. I need so, his diet. So that that 335 that he was at when he started, he said he's been working out for months, and he got a game-sealing sack, more or less, because Vegas also tried that 4th and 15 attempt, and it uh, it was no good. So right. the Battle Hawks are able to get their 4th and 15 onside. Vegas fails to get theirs. They turn the ball over, quote-unquote, on downs, and Arlington prevails by two points. Are you sure it was T.J. Barnes? They, the stat sheet has him down for just one tackle, no sacks. I think it doesn't count sacks on point-after-touchdown conversions. Ah, okay. But that makes sense. I was, I, I was keeping up with big plays. That was part of my job. I was doing game notes mm-hmm. for the team so that we would have stuff to distribute to the media. And I had like my binoculars zeroed in on the guy who made the plays. But usually the referee will just be like, the conversion is no good, regardless of what happens. It could be an incomplete pass. It could be whatever. It doesn't count towards uh, the stat sheet. But I am very certain that it was 72 who made the game-sealing tackle of Luis Perez. So um, Statistically, it was three sacks apiece, but Barnes's tackle during that conversion attempt was what sealed the game eventually. So, gotcha. And, and fun fact, I mean, well, we all knew this was going to happen. Donald Payne and Josh Hawkins showed out. Oh yeah, uh, big time. Hawkins had six tackles. Um, and Payne, Payne had, had seven. seven. Yep. And so, and another guy that really kind of showed out to Colin Schooler. Does the name sound familiar, Texas fans? That's correct. Brendan Schooler's brother. Oh, of all things. Of all things. And I'm going to tell you, man, maybe Colin Schooler would have caught the ball in the end zone against Kansas. Ah, oh, no, I'm just kidding. I just slapped <laughs> myself. I, I, uh, so, uh, <laughs> like like we said, the defense really showed out, showed up, 
And that's how you win championships. Literally, the saying is, defense wins championships. Exactly. And this is a this is a defense that I think could win a championship, based on what I saw from this team. I think you've got enough strength on the D line with players like Barnes. You got enough strength in the linebacking core with Schooler and Payne, and you got enough strength in the secondary with players like Hill and Hawkins. That this is going to be a very tough defense to play against. And they are the only defense in week one that got two pick sixes. DC got a pick six, but this is the only team that's got two pick sixes to the defense's credit. And I feel like that number is only going to go up. 100%. And, you know, I think I think that deserves our first player of the week award. Uh, one of the guys who had the pick six is actually the first touchdown for the Renegades in 2023. I think I think we should give it to Tomasi Laulile. That's a great idea and a great transition into cylinder number three. So cylinder number three is a player profile and... Uh, sometimes if we have the opportunity, it could be a player interview. It could be a coach profile. Um, I'm kind of working through some of my connections to be able to get in touch with some people on staff with the Renegades and see if uh, any of them are willing to come on to the show. But I definitely feel like the very first touchdown of the season, I thought for sure was going to be somebody like Davion Smith. Right. Oh, that would have been, been my bet for sure. Like, if you were a wagering man, which I'm not, because like I said, I am, I've got a more vested interest in the team than, uh, than I usually do. Um, but if you were a betting man, it probably would have been a very, very long shot to see Tomasi Lalile as the first person to score a touchdown for the Renegades. He intercepted uh, Luis Perez screen pass. He just read the play was able to grab onto it and then rumbled his way into the end zone over by home run porch. The crowd went absolutely nuts. A crowd of only 12,000, I might add. Um, I, I'm, still, I'm still processing that because there were about 12 or 15 rows that they had completely cordoned off. I don't know if you saw any pictures of that. Did you see any pictures from the stadium? Oh, no, I didn't actually. So the area that used to be the Rangers dugout along the uh, first baseline there, right? They had several set, several entire sections, probably about fifteen rows deep, that were basically just closed off. And you, uh, they, they had security standing there. Nobody was sitting there. And I think it's because they wanted people to have a better view of the stadium. Because when you're that close up, you're not able to see the field quite right. as well. So they were, I think they were doing it for, for spacing reasons. But at the same time, the announced attendance was 12,047, I believe. Whereas um, the Renegades of 2020 had over 17,000 in attendance uh, week one. Now, granted, they didn't have the opportunity to market to the town quite as well they um didn't have as much time as the 2020 edition did so there there are some logistics behind the scenes regarding the marketing effort that contribute to that as well um but when Lalile scored that touchdown it felt like there were 20 30,000 people in that stadium it was rocking and that's what you want from your XFL crowds, and I see the picture you sent me, and that is interesting. I think, yeah, I think it's a vantage point uh, situation there, you know. If you're sitting there, all you're going to see is the back of the player's helmets. So, uh, who wants to see that? They want to see the action. So, um, right. I can see why they, like, cordon those off. But, uh, you know, talking about uh, Tomasi Laulile, I mean, he played for Indianapolis. Uh, well plays a relative term you know he's you know he's a, a, another textbook xfl guy practice squad for indianapolis mm-hmm. didn't get to play in the nfl comes to 
the XFL and shows out already in just the first game. He did go to Brigham Young University, BYU for those uh, who have never heard that said all the way out loud. Uh, I feel like injuries kind of played a part uh, in his uh, uh, sophomore and junior year because he only played four games in 2014. Uh, had an interception, fun fact, that was his only interception in college, and then he played 10 games in 2015, and he had, uh, 26 tackles and three sacks, so, you know, a solid college player, for sure, uh, and he was big, mm-hmm. which is why he got drafted, or, you know, went undrafted, he got picked up by the, the Colts, um, and so, you know, he's... He's already shown he is useful to this team. He is going to be a force to be reckoned with on the defense. And, you know, with this defense, you know, you kind of they got some dogs. And he is the top dog right now in my eyes. He, he is definitely – sh- he, he's, he's showing a lot more than I was expecting him to show. And, and I don't say that as a knock on who he is as a player, but he wasn't even one of the names that we mentioned on last week's episode when we were talking about this loaded defense. Yeah. Like, we were talking about Payne. We were talking about Barnes. We were talking about Hawkins. We had all of these guys that we were like, oh, watch out for them play. And they did. They played really well. But then you have players like Lalile and Bowsby who end up scoring freaking touchdowns, man. And that was just... That was really, really cool to see because I don't know what got said in that 10-minute halftime, but you could tell, you could visibly tell in the third quarter that something was awakened in that defense. They were sticking to their assignments better. They were tackling better. They were reading the quarterback's eyes better, and it led to... um, couple of big pass breakups it led to those two pick sixes it led to breaking up the pass that was intended for geronimo allison on fourth and 15 during that onside attempt at the very end of the game um the defense was just understanding their assignments and playing them so so well and to watch lalile rumble into the end zone the way that he did was very satisfying it was it was just it was fun to watch and it gave the team and the stadium uh enough momentum and hope to carry them to the finish line which was awesome and you have to just kind of assume he's going to be another uh big part of this team when they go into the next week's game as well and don't don't be so you know shocked when we see Payne shout again Hawkins shout again and with Houston I mean, they, yeah, not to get ahead of myself here, but, you know, the defense is going to have to step up. And, you know, Tomasi Lalule is going to be one of those leaders. Well, I I think what's, what's really cool is he was a part of the 2020 Dallas Renegades hmm. team and um, didn't see a whole lot of playing time, had, had two tackles, and then played uh, in the spring league in 2021 for the Jousters. Um, and then he was part of the USFL last year with the Houston Gamblers. Didn't see a whole lot of time, um, but the stats that I'm seeing show that he had a total of 20 tackles and a half sack, 12 solo. So he is, he's been working his way for an opportunity like this. And for that opportunity to pay off in week one and make history as the first renegades touchdown of the 2023 season is pretty awesome and i'm virtually certain that he was one of the players interviewed during the post-game presser and he he gave um a really cute answer during one of the final questions i didn't get to sit in on the on the presser for very long because i was doing other stuff behind the scenes but when i was able to step into the press room one of the last questions that was asked of the of the guys was what would you be doing if you weren't playing for the Renegades? And he said, I just had a little girl, so I would probably be at home with her. Aww. So it, 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 it's something that keeps you from your family to pursue your dreams 
and he is living the dream right now, making the most of the opportunities that the XFL gives, and that's pretty awesome. That is extremely awesome, and speaking of those opportunities, you know, big game coming up this week, Zach, big game. Yeah, lots of lots of opportunities there as well, and uh, like you said, it's, it's going to be tough to contain such a prolific offense. The most points scored of any team in week one, and that's going to be what this Renegades defense is going to be up against. Rev up your engines one more time, Renegades fans. It's time for Cylinder number four. This is the fourth and final segment of the evening, previewing the game against the Houston Roughnecks at TDECU Stadium. They called it the Texas Throwdown three years ago, but now that there's three XFL teams, do you feel like they need to come up with a new name for it, Joe? Yeah, you got to do something I-45 related, just or something. I don't know, because you, you I mean, can you can do the I-35 for San Antonio uh, Arlington, but uh, yeah, because you're right, throwing a third team in the mix kind of negates the whole Texas Throwdown thing, so. I don't know, uh, two one four versus whatever. What's the area code for Houston? I don't even know. But it's like something. There's just got to be someone out there who can come up with a clever name for this rivalry. Yeah, it's going to be some kind of marketer that comes up with it, and we're going to look at it and be like, "Holy crap! Why didn't we think of right. that?" Um, but there, there's a lot of area codes for Houston. Seven one three is one of the biggest ones, and uh, two eight one is another one. But my train of thought is that using the highways is actually really smart because I-10 is what divides San Antonio Mm -hmm. and Houston. So you can have the I-45, you can have the I-35, and then when you're talking about San Antonio and Houston playing each other, you just have the I-10. So it kind of forms a bit of a triangle uh, regionally when you're talking about each of the Texas teams playing each other. But talking specifically about Houston this week... They took care of business against Orlando by a final score of 33-12. to 12. And taking a look at their stats page, they had very few empty possessions, and they were very efficient, racking up 337 yards of offense, 16 first downs, 12 of them through the air. Silver's had a pretty good game, but I also feel like the Guardian secondary kind of helped give Dallas, or not Dallas, Arlington. I do that every game. How how many times am I going to say Dallas when I mean to say Arlington? How, how long before I actually get it right? Silvers did have two touchdown passes, but he also had two interceptions. So I th- I feel like whatever type of defense the guardians ran is something that arlington is going to need to run a similar version of because if you can turn silvers over then arlington's defense is prolific enough to turn those into points agreed and silvers you know an xfl alumni from 2020 played with seattle um like you said the numbers are pretty impressive 272 yards that's impressive and then you know two touchdowns but you're right i mean with the way the defense has been playing for the Renegades, uh, him turning the ball over twice kind of you know plays right into what the Renegades are all about right now, which is the defense. Well, one thing that concerns me is, like we said, the Renegades offense is going to need to step up this week. Well, holy cow, Trent Harris had four sacks uh, 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 against Orlando. Tim Ward had two yep. sacks. They accounted for six of the seven sacks that the uh, Roughnecks got against the Guardians, and then they picked off the Guardians three times. So it's going to yeah. be a matter of taking care of the ball, getting establishing the running game, and trying to just stop these you know, Roughnecks. They seem to be flying all over the field. Manuel Ellerby had eight tackles. So it's, it's really going to – I think this is going to be a defensive struggle right here. I think it could be, and uh, I, I think to, to echo off of what you were just saying, I think it's whoever wins the turnover battle. Uh, I think you've got to take care of the ball in this game because Arlington threw an interception from Plitt, but they also got a forced fumble 
and turned that into three points, and then they had two pick sixes. So they won the turnover battle, and they got a total of, I want to say, 16 points off of turnovers. So you've got to force those turnovers, get points off turnovers, and minimize turnovers on the other end. I think if Plitt is able to throw a clean game and the defense is able to force a turnover or two from Silvers, then we should be in a good place. But I personally want to see more out of Davion Smith. I, I, yeah. I want to, I, I want to see that pursuit get beaten with some dump off passes that go to Smith out of the backfield. I want to see some screens and I want to see some draw plays where they're over committing on the edge and he just gashes them right up the middle. He's got the talent. He's got the numbers from working uh, in the XFL a couple of years ago, going around through some of these other semi-pro leagues. He's got the skill set to be able to do something like that, but they have to go out and actually execute. If we can get more production from Smith and we can keep turnovers to one or zero, I think Arlington's got a I good chance. I think they do too. I also think the O-line just needs to create those holes for Smith too. And like you said, this, this yes. second week, this is where we'll really see what this offensive line is all about. Now they got the jitters out. They got uh, another whole week of practice. They should be okay on their assignments, no missed assignments. And I think the O-line needs to have a big game. Smith needs to have a big game. And Plitt needs to have a big game. Take care of the ball. And yeah, I think they're going to be fine. Well, interesting fact about this Arlington O-line. Jonathan Heimbach is the O-line coordinator. And I think he followed our yeah. page. Um, so he's he's vested in the community because he's he's following pages like ours. He was an offensive lineman for the XFL back in 2000. Okay. And he was and I think he was Davion Smith's offensive line coach at Tampa in 2020. Okay. So he has O-line experience with the XFL probably better than anybody in the league. He played O-line, and then he's coached O-line in both iterations. So this fella, if there was anybody to get the offensive line ready for week two, I think it would be him. Okay. And you know what? I will I will trust I will trust Heimbach. I will trust him. And we will see. Uh, we'll see what happens here. So do you have predictions at? Oh, final score prediction. See, this is the one that's always really tough because I predicted a lot more points than what Arlington ended up putting up uh, last week. So I may try to keep it closer to that defensive battle like you mentioned. Um, but overall, teams in the entire league were not all that great at their point after touchdown conversions. I saw a lot of scores that had like 18, that had 12, and then a field goal made it like 15. I am going to say that it'll be 24 to 15. I'm giving Arlington the dub 24 to 15. I think we get some production from Russellino. He was a perfect three for three in week one. And I think we get another field goal or two from him. And then maybe even a pick six. But I think we find a way to get it closer to about 24 and the defense locks things down. And uh, we take care of business 24-15. I think it's going to be a defensive struggle. I think it's going to come down to, like you said, like we said, the uh, turnover uh, margin for each team. And I think the Renegades are going to win that. I think Plitt having a week under his belt. I think the O-line having a week under their belt. Everyone getting the jitters out from last week. I think it's going to be the Renegades, but I think it's going to be a defensive struggle. I'm going to go 16-14. 16-14, says Joe. You know what I need to do is I need to go back through our old show notes and try to keep up with who ends up with the most accurate predictions. I'm going to include that in uh, next week's episode, taking a look at what our predictions were for this week and how close they were. And uh, oh, try to give each other good. try to give each other crap for it. We'll see. That sounds, hey, that sounds fun for me, man. Because <laughs> <laughs> it might go in your favor. But 
I will say it's going to be really, really tough trying to see Houston actually going from 33 against Orlando to 14 or 15 against Arlington. Well, I believe in the Renegades defense, Zach, so we'll just have to wait and see, okay? I guess we will. I guess we will. Uh, that just about does it for this edition of the Renegades Roundup. We took a look at stuff from around the league and then honed in on these Arlington Renegades and how they did last week and how they might fare this week. Joe, any final thoughts before we call it a night? And where can the folks at home keep up with you in between episodes? No, no final thoughts. I think the Renegades are going to have a good time in Houston. You can follow me on Twitter at TV. And I tweet some funny stuff. And I'll be watching this game because it's a Sunday night game. I'll at least watch the first half, probably. I go to bed early. I'm a morning anchor, so 3 o'clock's my wake-up time. So, yeah, yeah, he's right. So, yeah, follow me on there, and I will probably be live-tweeting some of this game. So, yeah, Zach. As for me, I'll be keeping up with as much of this league this weekend as I can, but I'm also broadcasting six high school baseball games in the span of three days. You can follow all of that fun by going to Zach the Voice on social media, Z-A-C-H the Voice. You'll find a Facebook Live feed broadcast. You'll find one on an online radio site called Mixler, and then you'll see me right back here in a week talking about how things fared against the Roughnecks. Um, I really believe that this team has what it takes to send Houston to one and one their first ever XFL loss, but it will come at a cost. So we'll, we'll see how all of that plays out. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Renegades Roundup. That'll do it for us. For Joe, I'm Zach. Thanking you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. But in the meantime, a reminder, everyone, to raise, raise some hell. hell.